So hi, everyone. This is Chris Campbell with the Food Institute, and welcome back to the Food Institute podcast. This week, we'll be exploring millennial food and beverage trends with Musylvania Chief Strategy Officer Andrew Cohen. But before we get started, I'd like to thank everyone who's been listening to the podcast and ask that you share this episode with your friends and family. In addition to the Food Institute website, we're now available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. So please like, subscribe, and share as it really extends our reach, and we really appreciate it when you do so. And a quick note, if there's another platform that you'd really like to see us on, please let us know, and we'll definitely try to get ourselves onto that platform. So with that all said, I'll introduce Andrew to the show and ask him how he's doing. So how are you today, Andrew? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Very excited. Um, you know, first time on the show, but longtime listener now and uh, really excited to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here too. And I think today we're going to be talking about a group of people that were very, very popular for a very long time, but have been supplanted a little bit by Generation Z in media headlines recently. But yes, we're going to be taking a look at millennial food and beverage trends. And I know Musylvania really has a reputation for having a pulse on this this cohort. But before we really jump into that, I think it would be useful for our listeners to get to know you a little bit more, Andrew. So could you share a bit about your professional career and how you ended up with Musylvania? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for me, personally, um, got an MBA from Babson College, uh, really focused on entrepreneurship and was, you know, destined to make dog toys for a living, but um, actually joined forces uh, in the family business a little bit, which is Musylvania, um, came in and actually sold a research business, which is really what inspired a lot of our millennial thinking, which we can get into. Um, as my first real job was kind of looking at this research business, we were trying to digitize it. Um, take all of these phone calls and make them all kind of transcript on on the internet and then have data for for usage. Um, so I actually got to learn research right away um, and then kind of worked my way through from a copywriting to social media director um, through chief operating officer to now chief strategy officer. Um, so I've been there for about nine years. Um, and Moose is, is about 20 years old. Um, we grew up a lot in, in the retail uh, spirit side of the business, but what really drove us is this research. We bought a church back in 2006. Um, and with it came a school. And um, we kind of decided with the school that we should build something unique as a business. And it was this research facility. Um, it was called Hatch Global Research. And what we learned was how to do market research for not only our own clients, but for different clients. And so we learned the business um, of research. And it inspired us to start studying millennials um, back in 2010. And actually our first launch of millennial research was 2011. So we're almost at the full 10-year mark. Um, and we've been learning a lot. We're going to talk a little bit about today. Um, but as an agency, we're a little bit badder and bigger now than we used to be. Um, and we do a lot of different really cool stuff. But we use the research uh, to power some of the big ideas that we bring to clients every day. So it's very cool. And I think one of the things that's really going to be interesting about this conversation is really a shift in how millennials have been thinking about different brands. So obviously, the entire world had a major shift in 2020 with the COVID-19 pandemic. But I think millennials are also at a point in their lives where they're starting to have, uh, you know, a transition into maybe a more traditional kind of, uh, you know, trajectory when you when you look at previous generations and cohorts. So I'd like to open there before we really dive into beverages and food. Can you give us some information regarding those top line changes you kind of saw with millennials in 2020? Yeah. So I, I think the biggest thing to remember is that, you know, being in the quarantine lifestyle, the content and the entertainment side of it is so important. We love to say that for the last 10 years, the most important way to talk to millennials is three things make them look good, make them feel good, and keep them entertained. And that last bullet point is probably now more than ever, that you really want to be entertained by brands 
um, by content in general. There's so much content out there now to kind of get into and uh, get deep into the world of, of the web with, with content that millennials now, especially through quarantine, want to be entertained more than anything. I think a lot of brands end up sending their own message out over and over and over again. We call it one-way communication. The best thing for a millennial is two-way communication. They want to be included. They want to have the brand think about them. And they want the brand to be building off of what the consumer is saying. So many brands today are saying how important listening is to the bigger DNA of everything. So that's really where we've come to with millennials is, hey, look, it's a really important thing to include them in the conversation and keep them you know, top of mind as you build the next piece of content. So, yeah, I really want to kind of dive into this entertainment aspect. And as a millennial, that's got multiple subscriptions to, you know, Disney plus and Netflix and Spotify, the list goes on. Right. So I, I agree. And I think anecdotally that, you know, entertainment aspect is definitely a big part of this generation, but I was wondering, is there any kind of learning a food industry executive could get from this when it comes to their advertising campaigns? Is, is it supposed to be, you know, they should be trying to entertain them in their advertising or is this entertainment aspect kind of a separate silo uh, that they want to kind of separate, you know, could you give maybe your thinking on how a food industry executive could kind of tap into this need for entertainment? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think it goes back to whatever product you're working on from a, a brand perspective. Obviously, you think about your DNA as a brand, and what's important to the consumer. But I think what's even more important to think about today more than ever with this millennial cohort is entertainment can be not just like funny, right? You can make entertainment in a lot of ways now. And I think if you look at the trends of consumer posted content about your brand, learn from that. Take that as the DNA of what you should be building off. Listen to what people are making about you and then build off of that in your own content strategy. I think oftentimes brands forget that fans are telling you what they want by making it all the time. You just have to be ready to listen to it and then build off of that. So it doesn't mean just be funny or find something to shock them and, and entertain them. It's like, oh my God, I got to be the next you know, 20 second commercial that gets your attention. It's more about being really smart and strategic on what your audience likes to hear. And another thing I saw in the Millennial Top 100 report was this real emphasis on fitness uh, and health. So obviously, you know, there's a, a massive overlay between a fitness company and a food company, you know, right? You got to feed yourself right if you're working out. But I was wondering if you could give us any ideas on how a food and beverage brand could really leverage the interest in fitness specifically, not so much the health. And if so, how would they be able to do this? Yeah, I, th I think you want to look for a really good partnership. That's probably the first step. We work a lot in partnership. I think you have to find a brand that sings your DNA and fits your brand mantra in a fitness thing if you are a beverage and kind of start to say, what about them is kind of like us. And a lot of times what you see is when two brands come together, more magic happens than one brand kind of on its own standing tall. So I think if you want to get into more of the fitness or a different space, like footwear was super important too. How do you do that? I think you look at who's doing it like you or who's similar to you in your brand sense and then build a campaign with them. And really that the collaboration aspect of where marketing has gone to has really created some of the best launches lately. So that's what I would say is really, really important. Like you can even go into the spirits world and say, you know, Travis Scott and AB made this cacti product, but you're seeing that more and more and more. That's really where you want to get to is like, who else talks like me or should be like my fan base? Let's make a collaboration and really speak together versus individual. 
And I think that's actually a great point because we've also seen Travis Scott make a move with McDonald's this year. We also saw, I think, BTS and J Balvin also created these, uh, you know, unique tailored meals with McDonald's. So I agree with you. I think it's something the food industry is kind of lagging on a little bit, to be honest, is this new, you know, this kind of emerging partnership that you're talking about, this partnership model when it comes to advertising and trying to find two separate audiences and bringing them together. So I think that's a really interesting idea. But like I said, I think the food industry could probably take a few tips from other sectors and showcase, you know, how this power of partnership really could propel your brand, especially when it comes to celebrity backing, right? So I think that may be a more traditional kind of advertising model that food industry executives are familiar with, but maybe partnering with a brand that seems a little bit more, you know, out of your wheelhouse, as long as you have the same ethos could probably be a very, you know, you know, successful, I guess is the right word I'm looking for here, successful kind of partnership. So do you have any idea of like what kind of brands would be able to partner with these food companies then? Any kind of, you know, I, we don't need to list out specific names, but, you know, any kind of categories maybe that uh, food industry executive might want to look at. Yeah, I think when you when you start talking about, about food and beverage specifically, we did uh, host a, another round of research specifically around beverages, right? I think you know, when we looked at why people chose these beverages, it came back to like the state of mind they wanted to evoke. Like I have to have some emotion to why I choose to drink coffee or tea or soda or whatever else it might be. So I think you have to think about in today's world, emotion driving partnerships, like what's going to actually hit your audience with that. So I think when it comes to uh, finding the right partner, as you're asking, it's kind of looking for brands that are standing for something more than the product itself. Like what else are they into? Is it, are they standing out for, for pride right now? Is that something that they're into? And is that something that you should be into? Looking for emotional utility is so important to this audience now. So those are the types of things that when you look for a partner, look for somebody who's doing something emotional with their consumer base, because I think then your beverage or your food becomes a little bit bigger um, in, in kind of that ethos, as we talked about, than just kind of a typical partnership for partnership's sake. And I think you just brought up the beverage report, and I think that's a good segue into the next section of the interview I'd like to conduct here. So before the recording, you shared the 2019-2020 beverage top 50. And you know, now that we're into 2021, I guess I just wanted to ask, did you notice any significant changes in the listing over the course of the last year, especially with COVID-19? You know, did you see any major shifts for millennials, or was it just kind of an acceleration of existing trends? I think you're going to see a lot of acceleration. What's really, you know, not shocking about this beverage top 50, when you start with Coke and Pepsi, uh, Dr. Pepper, Mountain Dew, you got four sodas right off the bat. And then you start to get into like, well, Starbucks hits the list, right? And they're pro- they're a top 100 brand in general, not just beverage. Um, you see Gatorade and Monster, uh, and you kind of continue to go down the list. And I think what's really interesting about the changes we're seeing is that the at-home connoisseur is really like made it a lot easier for them this year to kind of like whatever's on that grocery shelf that I can get delivered is what I'm going to drink because that convenience is so important today. Um, Not being able to leave the house very much or kind of having that world be a little bit more shut down. So we didn't see like a drastic change in the types of products because I think, again, the affiliation is what we saw as like a huge thing that came out of our, our discovery of this, this research was, you know, I remember these big brands and that's kind of what makes me think about it again. I think that's what's really, really important for beverages is like, if you are niche or you're not the biggest hitter, how are you going to break through? Because this top 10 list is pretty much all the heavy hitters, right? And I think you do it by finding emotion again that connects deeper with the audience and says, hey, I'm really into plant-based milk. 
I need to find a way to make those people be aware of me so that they stop picking out whatever other milk that they've typically drank. That's the way I think you move and shake on the list. It's finding deeper connection points with your core audience because those big guys are hard to knock off, bottom line. Yeah, it's interesting, right? So I think millennials have a reputation for trying really out-of-the-box kind of items, products, right? Uh, doing things that are a little bit different than previous generations. And then you look at this top 100 brands list, and it's a lot of really familiar brands that everyone knows about, right? So I think that does play into the nostalgia factor. We've seen that at the Food Institute with a lot of food and beverage trends over the last year, you know, especially early on in the pandemic, people turning to, you know, Kraft Mac and Cheese or, you know, other legacy brands that they're really familiar with. Um, but another aspect, like I said there, I think is that millennials do get this rap for wanting to try out, you know, very exotic or unique flavors. But we did see a lot of the products on that list being, you know, more traditional brands. So I guess my question for you is, you know, what type of brands really do well with the millennial market? Is this whole idea that they are just looking for that exotic, unique flavor a little bit overblown? Are they more like other generations? You know, what is your thinking on that? Yeah, I think that's a really great question because the millennial audience is um, always kind of this mystery box, right? But they're really not as complicated as the other generations. I think you know, as many times you say that millennials are different than a different generation, they're actually somewhat the same in some of the same consumption patterns, especially in beverage with some of the large soda brands who have still made a massive splash. I think I think what you see now in this audience in the way that is different is like, you see these TikTokers all making like these crazy Starbucks drinks. Like they're all like, what else can I add to this pump of this and sprinkle of that, right? So the question is to say, how do you create it to be a little bit more for this audience? How do you make a, a variation of your product? Like I, I read something from Kraft Heinz that said their, their main tactic is social listening to say, we're actually changing the sizes of our ketchups or the, the products we come out with is based on what the audience tells us again. So I think the way to get to this generation differently, break through the clutter and, and really make a splash with them is to kind of think about what they're asking for and what they've resonated with and really spearheading that as a campaign, a product launch uh, and something new because I think everybody likes something new and they like something they can trust. Those are the two places you have to understand. And if you know them both, do them both really well and balance the two because just being you and, and having the trustworthiness, that's great. But you're not going to maybe get that new consumer to reach on the shelf and go, man, I really want to try this. And I think that's that's what's different about this generation is that they're not afraid to take that risk. Um, you just have to kind of incentivize them enough to make that jump. And another interesting part I found in the report was some of the genders, um, you know, I guess gender differences really in some of the preferences. So one of the things that I really noticed was that water, sparkling water, soda, and fruit juice really have a fairly uh, even gender split when it comes to preferences. Mm -hmm. And some of the other products had a gap and we can get into that in a minute. I think this is probably fairly baseline when it comes to other generations too, not just millennials, but what do you think really makes those four items so gender neutral? It was almost a 50-50 split as far as I can tell. Yeah. You know, I, I think what we learned in the, in the kind of uh, beverage research is that there really isn't a lot of um, difference between male and female in a lot of the consumption patterns. I, th I think a lot of them have similar desires. And I think it goes back to, you know, you know, you might see a little bit more sparkling water on one side of the fence, or you might see a little more kombucha on the, on the predominantly female side um, or something more like wine or smoothie or, or ice or hot tea versus maybe more of like energy drink for male. I think those are the, the key things that like, Oftentimes brands look at a target persona and that's all they talk to. And there's so many people on both sides of the, the gender stuff that you have to remember 
people like gender neutral as much as they like something built just for them because it makes them feel comfortable that no matter what they are, who they are, they can enjoy this drink just like anybody else. And so I think when it comes to that breakdown, remembering that people like kind of being not super specific that you have to be this way. Like there's a lot of females who drink energy drinks. We're just, we're, we're kind of shifting because there's more males who talk about it. That's okay. Just don't be afraid to talk to that female audience that they might also really enjoy the same style of marketing, you know? Yeah, it's definitely interesting. It reminds me I, a couple of years ago, I think it was the Diet Dr. Pepper advertising campaign. It's for men and how that kind of backfired. So I think you're spot on there. You know, uh, this there's a lot of consumers out there. And obviously, I think a lot of people are looking to be included. Right. So I think that's a really good point that, you know, you can focus on your core audience, but make sure you're not alienating everybody else. Right. You don't want to be Peloton. I mean, but yeah, you, you still do want to be Peloton, but you don't. I mean, that, that ad is still in my mind on you know, going a little too far with calling something out that's just not necessary. And I think um, a lot of brands can learn from that and just kind of look at success is built on finding emotion, but doing it in a way that's very, very sensitive to everybody, because that's what the world is right now. Not only with COVID, just in general, we're all a little bit, our, our, our barriers are up a little bit more, right? We're a little more guarded, um, whether it be going to the grocery store or actually having a deeper conversation. So it's really important to to kind of be sensitive in today's marketing world and make powerful emotional statements, but know that it comes from where your consumer really wants you to be as a brand and not places that you don't really need to be as a brand. I think that's a hard line for a lot of brands to find. And I would like to just dive into a couple of the product categories in the yeah. beverage sector that were actually, you know, pretty evidently, you know, had a, a had a gender divide, right? Yeah. So I was thinking, you know, looking at that report, you know, liquor and spirits versus wine or, you know, ready to drink cocktails. I think that probably, you know, passes the sniff test for most people as to the gender differences there. But do you think that the this kind of split is something that's going to remain? Do you think it's something that's going to kind of, you know, maybe... Uh, you know, alleviate over the next couple of years, even over the next decade? You know, what is your viewpoint on some of these products where there is that kind of split? Is it an opportunity? Is it something you should double down on? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think um, a couple of the things on the list that were like predominantly female was like milk alternative um, is, is predominantly female. That's a really interesting one that I'd say more and more millennials end up at a certain age, get to the marriage state, and they probably all start drinking an alternative milk like I do now. I'm, I'm all plant-based milk because you know, my fiance was loving it. That's the type of mentality I think you have to remember that you become one as a household and then some of that starts to shift depending on where you are in your life. I do think you look at RTDs and you say RTDs are probably going to become more and more gender neutral because of how many there are, because of they're becoming more alcoholic in nature. They're not just maybe the low alcohol solution. Um, but a lot of the RTD world is exploding I think everybody loves a can, right? There's just something about looking at a new product in a can that gets people really excited. Um, I think those are things maybe on the female side that some things are going to stay that way. Some are probably going to move to the middle. And the male side, I think you're going to see beer predominantly win over there on the male side. I think you're going to see energy drink probably win. But I think a lot of it comes back to that's because their marketing is focused on it, right? If you're Monster, you're probably thinking about Monster Trucks and everything else. You're focused on that audience. I think if, if they decide to win in a new place, you're going to start to see them come back to the middle a little bit more. Beer, I think, has been doing it for a really long time. They've been really male-focused. There's a lot of females who drink a lot of beer. It's just We just have to kind of be cognizant of how to speak to them. So I, I see most of the stuff living in its lane until brands decide to be different in their approach. That's usually why these things end up the way they are. 
And I think you bring up a good point there, you know, um, with people getting to the point, at least in this generation, where they are. Maybe it's 10 years later than the generation before them. But yeah, millennials are starting to get married and have families, right? So there was a little bit of a delay there. But I think now that we're looking to the future, what kind of food and beverage trends do you think they're going to embrace in the years to come as they kind of transition into this new, you know, I guess, you know, home life, family life kind of part of their of their existence here. So what do you see being really like important over the next five to 10 years? I, I think the healthier, the better is probably my first trend analysis. Um, I think what we saw in our research was that you drink or you eat something to kind of help energize you or bring some emotion, right? So things that create that naturally in their story about the type of superfood that you have in there or the, the ingredients you've chosen is the first step in trend analysis, I would say. That's going to be an interesting place, right? You still see Coke, Dr. Pepper, then they're going to rank high because people know them and love them. But the ones that are going to start to break through differently, I think, find a way to have really authentic ingredients. I think that's probably my first trend. I think the second one would be, it seems like a lot of this fitness trend does come into recovery and nutrition and kombucha and milk alternative and some of these things that you're using for nutrition and recovery do kind of take over this new upcoming space. And I feel like those two areas, and it's kind of like the energize and the nutrition and recovery, are, it makes sense, right? The fitness side of the millennial and the ingredient side of the millennial is so much more educated now than we were 10 years ago that people are going to start making more decisions because they know more and they understand macros and micros and they understand the gym differently. Um, I think that's really important to remember that everybody tried to make the gym out of their house. So they, they learned more about it than just kind of going in and figuring out themselves. So there's a lot in that other side of the millennial brain that's going to influence food and drink a ton. Um, and those would be the, the top two trends I see coming into the future. So that really jives with a lot of the stuff that we've been tracking here at the Food Institute over the last, whatever, 15, 16 months at this point, right? Um, I think that there's definitely been a massive increase in interest in healthy products. And I think this was something that you probably were tracking ahead of the pandemic as well. But really, you know, March of 2020, this really became a, a high focus point for a lot of people. And it wasn't just, you know, healthy, you know, I'm trying to lose weight, but also probiotics or some kind of functional benefit. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, looking at that, what other kind of impacts did COVID-19 have on millennials? Um, I know one thing I want to throw out there before you jump in here, you know, you've said authenticity a couple of times. And I think in the wake of George Floyd and a couple of the other Black Lives Matter movements last year, you know, it was really transformative in 2020 in a lot of ways. And I think that, uh, you know, there's just a higher awareness now on brands when it comes to making different kinds of statements on different types of issues. And I think, you know, right now is Pride Month. And most of the things I've seen so far on social media, I know we're only recording this three days into Pride Month, but a lot of it has been focused on rainbow washing, right? So I guess the question I really have here is that authenticity, you know, obviously it's important, but, you know, how did COVID-19 change the dynamic between a consumer and a brand when it comes to that kind of authenticity? I think it's a great segue from what we talked about earlier to now, right? We said, make me look good. Feel good, keep me entertained is what the last 10 years are about. We got three new filters that we're using internally with our clients. The first one's called Make Me Me. And that's just like enhancing and supporting and motivating individuals that they can be who they are. And that's such a huge topic to just say, hey, no matter who you are, if, if you love yourself, we love you too. Or if you love our products, we love you too. No matter what you look like, what shape, what color, anything like that doesn't matter. Make Me Me is that first filter. I think it, the second filter we're using is make it for me. And that's kind of creating innovative products because of the audience that has come to you and said something. That's a lot of what 
the Kraft Heinz's of the world. And now the spirit brands are doing too with these RTDs. They're listening and building off of it. Um, and I think that's a really important bullet point is to say, how are you going to evolve whatever you're selling to match your audience and what they're asking for? The last one we're doing, which I think is right on the, you hit it right on the head with like the George Floyd, the bigger movements, make my world bigger is the third bullet point. So it's make me me, you know, make it for me, and then now make my world bigger. That's the type of thing where when you're at really the peak of your marketing analysis and you're thinking about your brand plan, what are you doing to be a bigger uh, brand in the world? What are you doing for these people who don't get enough love and support and attention? Not just the Black Lives Matter, not Stop Asian Hate, not just Pride Month, the other stuff that we haven't talked about enough. How are you making people's worlds bigger? Those are the types of things when you look at COVID and the impact of how audiences now react so heavily to messaging on the internet. You have to be here to be winning in 2021 and beyond. So those filters, I think, are so important to come back to that before it was simple. Now it's more complicated. And that makes brand planning a deeper, you know, harder dive for your planning team, for your audience analysis, and really what's really important to them comes with the number one thing you need to go look at before you start kind of talking about what you're doing from a marketing perspective. And when it comes to demographics, I think it just inherently lends itself to comparisons. And I think it would be, you know, I'd be derelict in my duties if I didn't try to compare the millennials to another cohort. And I think what we're going to do is just take a look at Gen Z. And I know that you guys focus specifically on millennials, but I was wondering, you know, just what do you see in any kind of differences between the two? A lot of people that I have talked to at least kind of see Gen Z as the extension of millennials, right? They're a little bit more digital because they grew up with it more, but a lot of the trends seem to be fairly similar. So I was just wondering what your take on, uh, you know, the differences between these two cohorts are and what kind of implications they could have for food and beverage companies in the future. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great segue because everybody's thinking about what's next. It's such a big question we get a lot. And I think the thing about Gen Z that we try to remember is that these generations learn so much from each other and they look up to the follow the, the generation above them and they kind of decide what they like and what they don't like. I think what you see from Gen Z that they like is emotion and authenticity and relevance. These things are going to stick for a long time. The things that are different about Gen Z, I think, is that there's they're not at the stage of life yet where they understand the shelf space. They understand all of the things that have been there for a really long time and a really short time. They're new to the shopping world. So I think when you talk about that long-term brand loyalty that you might have with Coke and Pepsi and Dr. Pepper and Mountain Dews of the world, that will evaporate with this Gen Z audience because that audience is not looking at this like I've known this for 30 years. They just haven't. They've seen plant-based milk as much as they've seen regular milk. That's just the way that they're going to start shopping differently. So I think whether you're food or beverage, looking at Gen Z, realize that the playing field is way more open than you might think because they don't have attachment to brands on, on long-term loyalty, they're actually willing to jump and change around to try things much more than any generation previously. That's why they're so different than, than maybe even millennials. So I think that's the place to kind of think about um, really marketing towards in Gen Z is just be ready to be adaptable and change because that's exactly who they are right now in their stage of life. I'm upset that we're running out of time here, Andrew, because I think we could probably do another 30 minutes just on Gen Z and how they differ from millennials. But I really appreciate all the different perspectives you brought up today. Uh, if someone wants to learn more about Muslevania, where should they go? Uh, obviously, Muslevania.com. You can you can check that out. Um, just to give you a quick snapshot, the name comes from Rocky and Bullwinkle. So if anybody's listening that still remembers that, be, be, you know, feel free to reach out on that idea. 
Um, so Musylvania.com, um, I'm Andrew at Musylvania. You can always send me a note. Andrew at Musylvania.com is an easy way to get in touch with us. Um, we love challenges from brands. We love problem solving. I think we love to use research and, and brands like you guys at the Food Institute to help us kind of say, we have to come in strategic. We have to come in smart about your audience. That's the first thing we're going to talk about, no matter who you are. Who is your audience? What do they love? What do you not know about them? That's where you're really going to find our secret sauce. And I think that's uh, a place to start with us is our site. You can see some case studies and kind of the way that we go about uh, developing information, insights, and creative. Well, I think we'll share the link to your website in the description of this episode, make it a little bit easier for anyone that's listening along. But I think that brings us to the end of today's session. I really want to thank you again for your time today, Andrew. And remember, if you're new to the Food Institute podcast, please follow, like, and share. And if you'd like to learn more about the Food Institute, please take a look at the links in our description to learn more about us and what membership can do for you and your company. So until next time, this is Chris Campbell signing off. 